Please turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 16. We'll be looking at verses 14 to the end of the chapter. We are continuing our series, David, the Warrior Poet. And the last two sermons, one dealt with preparing for a king. Last week we actually were introduced quickly to David. And my initial thought was to jump to 17, David and Goliath. That's kind of a known story and should be kind of fun. Um, But I'll be honest, I thought this will be a lower attended week. I was correct. So I chose this passage, and as I read it, I thought, man, this this may be the better story. Um, So for this congregation, this story, I think, has a lot to open up for us. So please know that if I had it to do again, this would be one I'd probably save and Maybe I'd have done David and Goliath this morning, since you all know that one by now. Okay, David and Saul's service. We're looking at verse 14 through 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And that's an instrument similar to a harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them to David, his son, to Saul. And sent them by David, excuse me, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have given us Jesus to heal. And we confess, Lord, that Even in this moment, we have sicknesses that we've never even admitted. We desperately need you, and I pray that this discussion would help us through the power of your Spirit to know the ways we need your healing and to invite you in. Amen. How do you want to live? I was watching uh, some football yesterday, and that was one of the commercials. How do you want to live? And there was a man at the window looking out with his coffee cup. Then it went on to ask questions. A decent person? cutting to a new shot, a fine human being, not a bad guy. There was another shot with a rearview mirror and a guy looking at it kind of, he looked successful but slightly disappointed. Always showing up, getting the job done as a good father, friend, son, is that it? Good? Of course not. Parent of the year? Better. Right? Employee of the month, absolutely. Going above and beyond, check. And then it shows a woman making her heart beat. And then it switches. Every one of these phrases switches a scene. One of a kind, the center of her world. There was a daughter at that point. The linchpin. 
undeniable. There was a woman doing a lot of hard work and sweating like a boss, a rebel, like a standard bearer, like a pro. And I have to be honest. I was kind of like, yeah, I, I want that. And then the, the uh, GMC Sierra was driving down the road. <laughs> I was duped. Dang it. They got me. Why did that catch my attention? Why does it catch all of our attentions? There's something in all of us that desperately want to live like a pro. We want to have it all together. We don't just want to be average or even good. We want to be the best. And I think the question I would ask you is, how do you do that as a Christian? How do you live as a pro-Christian? Right? How, if you want to get down the Christianity thing, what would that look like? Often we think, of, I would memorize Scripture. Right? I would, I would, I mean, I would attend church, and I would, I would go on mission trips. We have all these things that are really good things, just like everything in that commercial. The problem is, we rarely would, ask, we rarely would we say... Thanks to Shane, he says so eloquently in the uh, confession that to live like a pro, you have to need. To live like a pro in Christianity, you don't have to be the boss, but you have to need. Right? You have to actually realize you need Jesus. And so the way you become a pro is by embracing this need of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Where is that in this passage? Why do I like this passage? Saul is normally a bad guy, right? But in this passage, he really points us to something I want to show. So here's our outline. Similar to last week, we have Saul and David. I'm going to do that at the outline, Saul and David. But Saul's going to show, we're going to see what was wrong with Saul. What I mean is, what did he do that was so bad? We're going to look at the results of what he did, and then we're going to look at what he does really well in this passage. That's the first part of the sermon, and then we're going to end with David and how he comes along and comforts Saul. And what I hope you get out of this passage is this, and of this discussion, really, if you don't get anything else, you need to need Jesus. That's not something you do at the beginning of your faith. That's not something you do when there's a really bad moment. That is the daily life of a Christian. That's what we're going to look at. Okay, let's look at Saul. What was so wrong with Saul? Every now and then the Bible, especially the Old Testament, does something that makes you kind of shocked, right? Remember, we'll see this in a few weeks. Uzzah touches the ark to stabilize it. And he's struck dead. And most readers get there and go, what was so wrong? Why would he touch the ark and die? I mean, why would a man trying to help stabilize God from falling? Oh, I mean, that might be the problem. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But the point is, we, the writer does a good job often of catching us in our own shock. And Saul's the same way. In chapter 13, what did he do wrong? The Philistines had gathered. It was a big deal. He had just started having success as a king, and his own army was feeble in leaving him. And Samuel was late. So what does he do? He does what Samuel was supposed to do and does the sacrifice. But that's a problem, because he was only operating with that sacrifice like a, a good luck charm, like something that you just had to do to get out of the way. Maybe he could even win God's favor. right? And then in chapter 15, we have another problem. He's defeated the Amalekites. He's captured Agag, the king. And they plunder the, the, the Amalekites. God had said to wipe them out. And yet Saul lets them live. Again, modern Christians. Saul's a good guy. God's a little mean, right? 
back in the Old Testament, here's how you would have heard that, right? Uh, the enemies like polio, we need to wipe it off the planet. They will take you down. And God is actually providing through Saul justice to take out an enemy that wants to kill this kingdom of Israel. And so Saul, once again, leaving Agag alive, fails, and Samuel shows up, and finally he says, if you look at verse 15, you don't have to look, I'll just quote it, verse 23 at the end, he has also rejected you from being king a second time. Saul repents, Saul is upset, he begs Samuel not to leave, and Samuel at the end of 15 says, bring Agag to me. And Agag comes out, and check this out, Agag's whole kingdom's been wiped out, he's been spared, and here's what he says, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Like, hey, I'm alive. Hey, here's this old guy with probably a heifer and a horn full of, who knows what he has. You know, he's just, and, and guess what Samuel does? Samuel looks at him and says, surely the bitterness of death is, or Samuel says, excuse me, as the sword has made women childless, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And he executes him. What a cheerful way to start a sermon. What's going on? Saul was not a good king because Saul cared about one thing, his pockets, his kingdom. He was not God's king enacting justice, and he had done wrong. And so God's spirit leaves him, and as we saw last week, goes on David, right? So David is anointed, and that's what we looked at last week. So what Saul did wrong with those things, but what are the, what's the result for Saul? I want to spend a few moments on the results. Look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We are modern people, and that is very hard to grasp. A spirit, what's going on? It's very tempting to just want to move beyond it and say, let the Bible be quaint, right? So what we do in our modern mind is we look at everything through the lens of science. And that's very, very important and very, very good. But we often do it to the exclusion of the supernatural. And we now know that physiologically speaking and through chemical imbalances, many of us suffer from things like anxiety and depression. And I think that's what Saul was dealing with. I think he had bouts of anxiety that were so strong, he, he needed help. And that was, that was the result of the Lord not only departing, but the Spirit coming on him. Now, I, I don't know what that means. I, in the Bible, like the New Testament, usually if it's a demon, it'll say demon. So I don't know if that's the writer's way of saying, sort of this is what we understand it to be a spirit. Was it a, like an actual being, or was it a disposition? It's hard to tell. But I will say this, I think it's spiritual. And one of the mistakes we make in our attempt to get out of the old school and into the new is we forget there is a supernatural realm, right? So often you'll have people say things like, um, and I've read these things, you know, I grew up in the church and everyone said the only way to get rid of anxiety or depression is through Bible study and prayer. And then I found this medication and it helped me, right? And I read those kind of things, I get so sad, I'm like, that, is that really what the church taught? That the only way you can get better is through supernatural means? Is that what the church ever taught? Because we don't believe that. The problem is we've sung so far over, we forget that there are supernatural remedies as well. Okay? And so what I want to say for just a quick snippet is this. 
Saul had something major go wrong, and God provided him physical healing. I don't know if I'll make sure I make that point as strongly later, so I want to say it again. David played an actual instrument that had actual sound waves going into Saul's body and ears and calming him. And we totally support medication and totally support counseling and modern means of health. Okay? But let me implore all of us that we don't ever see that as separate from the supernatural. Francis Schaeffer, and I quote this, I read, bring this book up so many times, you might as well read it. True Spirituality. Um, he talks about how modern man, he was in Europe, and they were about 30, or 30 years ahead of America in this regard, the separation of the natural from the supernatural. And how even in the church, we speak a great game supernaturally, but we really have a separate chair, and we sit in that chair for most everything else, and it's the chair of the natural. And one of the things that I hope that in this passage we'll see is that we should never separate the two. That, that life is both natural and physical and what you can measure through science, but there's an element of supernatural, and we don't have to separate them out. We can actually hold them in tandem. And so for, for, for Saul, he has this anxiety, he has this real issue, and the Bible calls that a spirit, and I just want us to understand that the cure can come in both the form of the supernatural, but also healing from medicine and doctors as well. And so what did Saul do that was right? That was, what was wrong, I mentioned, what were the results, this anxiety? Uh, and what does he do right? This is where I want to spend a moment and challenge this congregation uh, in this area. Look at verse 15. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Saul hit a home run. How did he hit a home run? He allowed other people to speak into his life. I mean, that's a very rare thing. How many of you are great at allowing people to come in and say, you seem depressed. Let me give you a number to somebody. Let me give you a phone number. Let me make the call. Saul did two things that I think are very important that we need to embrace. Number one, he had such a disposition, we aren't sure why, that he allowed these people, these servants, to know him well enough that they knew there was a problem and they could talk to him about it. That's not easy. And I want to say, I think you guys struggle in this area. I've been here for three and a half years and I probably had four people call me with a problem. Now, part of me loves that. I don't want to be, I want to be honest, you know, but it's just not reality. And I'm not saying I have to be your person either. What I am saying is, do you have people who know you well enough to say, you don't seem okay? You seem to be hurting. You seem to be anxious. You, you seem different. Do they, can they tell? And can they ask you? Right? Now, do not hear that and think, who should I go get to do that? I mean, no, I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. Because it's you. The reason you don't have it is because you're putting off a vibe. Right? The vibe is, I'm untouchable. You bring that up, I'll unfriend you. I mean, don't go near me. But when the Spirit is working, when you actually see your sickness, you hopefully will give off a vibe of, I need help. Especially before it's too late. 
right? So, I know it's getting intense, but that's important. The second thing that Saul does very, very well is, it seems very simple, they explain that there's a man that can help him. In fact, one of the servants in verse 19 or 18 explains it's David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing and a man of valor. And he goes on to explain who David is. And Saul says, send me David, your son. He says, this, send this to Jesse. Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. So Saul responds. That seems very simple in that story. Big deal. He actually pursues the advice. He actually moves toward the help. He actually is saying, yes, I'll make the phone call. I'll send the email. I'll take the appointment. I need help. And he goes. What a humiliating thing. Um, David Wilcox has a song. I'll just mention the first line. He says, the night I fell in sorrow, I knew I was alone. A dozen good time friendships, but my heart was still unknown. And I remember hearing that the very first time and thinking, that describes my life in so many ways, having a lot of friends that are good time friends, but still feeling that unknown. Do you feel known? Have you allowed anybody into your life that, you, that could know you? And I would say conversely, are you seeking to know people in that way to get into their world and their life? So, what do we do? Um, before I try to transition into David, I want to just remind us of something that, um, about Saul through an illustration of my favorite, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. And it's actually not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. But here's what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he goes on to describe how he became envious of successful people. How he, the commercial, he, he saw that lifestyle and that's what he wanted. And they have it all together. They're fat, at that time that was important. And they're sleek. You know, now you might say they're trim and sleek. I don't know, trim and all these different descriptions we might use. But he, and he finally describes his own condition by saying, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. And ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But he says, I went into the sanctuary. I came here. I came to worship. And it was there in the sanctuary where he became known. He didn't just walk into a room. He worshipped Yahweh. And when he did, he said in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. What you have in that psalm is a picture that I think hopefully Saul is emulating where he's finally at a place where he needs God to come near him and comfort him. And what Asaph in that psalm fully says in a much more beautiful way is we must uh, not only move toward people, but the ultimate goal is to move toward God to worship. So the people are there to point you to God. That's what the servants did. And who they brought to him was David, right? King David. He's been anointed. He uh, has this talent we didn't know where he plays an instrument called the lyre. I don't know how that sounds, but it's probably very beautiful back then. Maybe our piano today would be similar. And um, this isn't verifiable. So I always look back at Thomas or maybe over. I talked to Doug about it, but, I did, but 
the word psalm, when, when it's translated into Greek, this is verifiable, does have the connotation of instrument associated with the actual poem. I wonder if David not only played the lyre beautifully, but if he also spoke psalms to Saul, uttering words about God as he played, which made it even more beautiful. But whatever happened at the very end, this is a chiasm, by the way. I won't go into that, but it ends uh, at the very end. It's not really the ending. It should be in the middle. What, what occurs in the last sentence is really what was happening earlier, but I'll read it to you from verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Um, what's going on with Saul? In a way, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is very hard to grasp. Because in the New Testament, if you are a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are anointed. But in the Old Testament, every believer didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way. But there was this unique role of the Holy Spirit with King Saul, and then we see with David when David's anointed, where the Holy Spirit comes on the person in a special way as a mediator representing God. Right? So when Saul was anointed, the Spirit came on Saul, equipping him and making him unique. Okay. Now, let's back up to Adam. When Adam was born, there was no sin, and everything was great, and then he sins, and the fall happens. Right? And then during the period before we have Jesus returning, you need a mediator in Christ. That's what you're longing for. That's what I'm longing for. That's what the Scriptures teach. And so I would say for Saul, he's a picture of that. When he is living as a righteous king and what David will actually be, there's a picture there of, of union with God and a mediatory role of Jesus. And the rest of us look to him and look to that situation and we say, well, where, how do we fit in this story? And I think it's by the fact that we need the presence of the Spirit in everything we do now. We're not like Saul or David when they had the spirit of sonship or the kingship on them. Does that make sense? As Christians, we are not autonomous, is my point. As Christians, we are never meant to be pro on our own. Does that, does that make sense? The, the problems I think we make, and I make daily, is I think to myself, if I live out my Christian life correctly, it'll look like this, and I have this entire amazing feeling, fantasy going through my brain, and Jesus is often in the distance. For Saul, he needed David, who is a picture of Christ, in his presence to be okay. Because he himself had lost the spirit's role as a, to make him king. Okay? So he needed that outward person to come in and be Jesus to him. And it's amazing how Saul, when, Jesus, when David was present, was completely okay. So, if I can make just one urging for all of us, it's this. Quit thinking of Christianity as not needing Jesus. Quit thinking that Christianity is, if you get your quiet time right, you do this worship right, you get that discipline correct, then you can go out and have these hours, even days, where you're like, awesome. You've got it. And then it starts to fade. It's like a superpower. You kind of start to run short, and you have to go back in and get it again. That's what Saul would make. That's the mistake Saul makes. What should Saul have done when David shows up? It's fascinating because there's a bit of humor in it. And I'm going to read it to you again. 
I skipped over it intentionally. In verse 18, the description of David ends this way. After describing him as a man of valor, he can play the liar, he's a man of war, he's prudent in speech, a man of good presence. And the Lord, Yahweh, is with him. Like, you just told Saul, who Yahweh should have been with, that the new king has Yahweh. And thankfully Saul was not in his right mind and wanting to kill him. He actually receives him. And David, who has Yahweh's anointing, goes into the enemy, whom he should just kill and get it over with, and become the king. And he goes in and soothes him. And I would think Saul, and I would hope all of us would say, I never want to leave this person's side. I want to hang out with this person all the time. And yet what we do is we often take Jesus and we sort of think, okay, that was a good quiet time. That was a good moment. Maybe communion went really well. And then I'm going to go live by myself autonomously once again. There's a place in the New Testament that I was actually blown away how the Holy Spirit works. It was just in a reading. I'm doing a reading plan. You come to these places. So many things go together. I had had this this verse in mind two weeks ago, but I didn't read it and, and, and use it. And I came to it. I came to church. I came to, told my wife, and then I came to um, the office and said, Doug, you got to hear this. That's how it works. I get excited. I just tell everybody. It's in Luke 18. Jesus heals the blind beggar. And it says, As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside and begging. And he's begging on this roadside, and he hears this crowd. And of course, he's blind, so his hearing. He knows intimately the the flows of the day, and something was wrong. He heard more commotion, and he asks, "Who? You know, I don't know if he knows anybody." He just asks, "Who's coming to town? Like, what's happening?" And the answer is, "Jesus of Nazareth is passing by." It's amazing. So this blind person, I don't know if he positions himself or how he does it, but apparently the crowd is huge, and he has to scream at the top of his voice for healing. He has to scream as loud as he can on two different moments to get Jesus to pay attention. But more than that, he's going to need to say something that would really grip Jesus' imagination. And you know what he says? Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then those that were around him rebuked him. Shh, shh, sorry, you know, he doesn't want to hear from you. Son of David, what's that? You know, where's your theology? The guy was confident. Son of David! And what does Jesus do? He sends to him, has him brought to him. What do you want for me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. This man sees the, David as a healer. And he sees the one who would come as the son of David, Jesus, as a healer. And he cries out to him. And the question before us is, is that how we see Jesus? Is that how you view Jesus when you think about him? I say this from time to time, and and I'm going to take a hit for it, but I think sometimes our Christianity gets very boring. Not all of you have that problem, but if we're honest, some of us from time to time are really bored in our Christianity. I would almost like for a raise of hands, but I'm not going to ask. I might be the only one. 
And here's what I would mean. Here's how I would describe it. Sometimes, not all the time, I might think thoughts about the Bible. I might come to worship. I might join a Bible study, but it's not gripping my heart. Okay? That's what I'm talking about. And we often wonder, like, what do I need to do to really grasp who Jesus is? And I think the answer from this passage is clearly, take your needs to Jesus. For Saul's response, in in the end of this passage, or in verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. If you are struggling with loving Jesus, with feeling affection toward Jesus, it's probably because he's not healing you. He's just someone you believe in. You know? It's just, he's, he's, he's the, the God you worship. You've got your theology correct. And, I'm not, and you're a Christian. I'm talking to believers. Some of you may or may not. But I'm talking now, you're a Christian. I believe you're going to heaven. But you can still get into this lukewarm, boring Christianity phase if Jesus is not the one healing you at all times. And so... Where do we find that in the Bible? I think Saul has a namesake in the New Testament, right? Saul of Tarsus. Paul, the apostle. Uh, His name actually didn't change. It was just he had two different names. One was Greek, I believe. One was Hebrew. But anyway, I always thought it changed. I I learned that not too long ago. Here is Paul in Philippians. He gives you his entire resume, right? Born of the tribe of Benjamin, like Saul. Circumcised on the eighth day. As to the law, blameless. I mean, that's amazing. As to being a Pharisee, zealous. He has this great resume. And at the end of that passage, he says, but I consider it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul knew he needed a Savior. And then in 2 Corinthians, the part I want to just hone in on as as we draw to a close. Paul's vision and his thorns. Paul is giving a testimony to a a church that has almost rejected him. They see him as weak, as even ineffective. And he goes, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And he explains, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And he goes on to describe the fact that he has seen and been in the presence of God. He can't even utter these things. And it's so lofty, and it's so huge, that it would lend itself on earth when he, when he comes out of this moment, however that works, to maybe arrogance or pride. And so he, so he tells us in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, make me a pro. I don't want trouble. I want to be above average. I don't want to just get the job done. I want to be the best. And three times Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you want to be a Christian pro? then you have to come to the place where weakness is everything. Where you will actually cry out to Jesus. Because you are finally admitting to the fact that you are terrified of who you really are if it was exposed. 
that you're tired of playing the game where you hide and put the great stuff out there and, and act like you have it together and you get the Sierra. It's not real. It's not you. What is real is that we are weak unless we are walking in Christ. And you cannot get there without owning the fact that you need Jesus to heal you. Are you honest about that reality? We come, how do you, what would be practical steps? I would argue that when you come to take this table, uh, take the Lord's Supper, pray somewhere in the midst, Lord Jesus, will you reveal to me the depths of my sin? Maybe there's a particular point of sin you've completely ignored. I would say when you have a devotion this week, even if you just make it to that moment one time this week and you open your Bible, don't just read it rotely, but pray, Holy Spirit, show me your healing power. Show me my sin. And He will open your eyes and He will show you your sin and your need of a Savior. That is the relationship Jesus wants to have with you. And in fact, He does have it with you and you'll experience it more real if you become honest with Him with your brokenness. Test him. And then, call me. Let's grab coffee. Right? Only tell me the reason why. That's from last week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people who want to be pro. We are just so groomed to cover our shame with productivity, image, uh, having things together so other people are envious of us. And it bleeds even into our faith and our Christian lives. And you will have none of it. Every song we sing this morning, every scripture we've looked at has said over and over again, we grow by seeing our brokenness. We, we see more of you when we see our sin. We, we are made strong through weakness. We sing it with every song. And yet somehow our flesh still blinds us to that truth. So I pray, O Lord, as we move into the Lord's Supper, that you through the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, would help us to believe that we need a Savior. Help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen.